good morning, everyone. I know that was for them. I didn't even open my mouth yet, so. Well, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open up to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, we're going to do some reading from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and chapter 11. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bibles, uh, you don't happen to have one of your own, feel free to open up to page 908, and then maybe just also kind of hold on page 911. We're in our fourth week in our series on emotions, Life is Stressing Me Out. And we've been talking about anger, anger. Last week we talked about anxiety. This morning it's on escapism. And my hope is in this series that we would take at least one small step to emotional maturity. And we define emotional maturity as experiencing the right emotion at the right time in the right intensity uh, and expressed in the right way. And so, so that's been our definition of emotional maturity, the right emotion at the right time, the right intensity expressed in the right way. Now, to key, the key to such emotional health is actually very simple. Now, don't confuse what I'm saying by when I say that it's simple. It is simple, but it's not easy. A lot of people confuse those two concepts, and simple and easy are not to be confused, right? Some things are simple and easy, but a lot of things, especially the good things in life, they are simple, but they're also really hard, right? And so we need to really make a distinction between what is simple and what is easy. The key to emotional health is really simple, but it is hard. It's kind of like doing a pull-up. Biomechanically, it's a very simple process. But if you've ever done a pull-up, you know that is a really hard thing to do. So the key to emotional health, while it is simple, it is hard. And the key is simply this. The ability to, to distill it down in a way that's memorable, whatever the things that God rejoices in, that's what you rejoice in. Whatever things grieve God, that's what grieves you. That is the key to emotional health. You want to be able to experience the right emotion at the right time, in the right intensity, express the right way? Then whatever rejoices the heart of God, let that be the thing that rejoices you. And then on the other end of that spectrum, whatever grieves the heart of God, let that thing grieve you. To the degree you can do that, to that degree you will have emotional health. To the degree that there's an incongruence there, to that same degree you will not have emotional health. That's been one of the underlying themes throughout this series. So today we're talking about escapism. What I want to do is I want to define it and then dive into it. So this morning as I begin, there's, I'm going to have three definitions of escapism. And, and it's not like anxiety. Escapism is something that we all experience. Now anxiety is something we all experience as well. But it's a lot more straightforward, so we're not going to spend much time on it at all. I do want to put it on your radar and then, and then dive into it. So, so let me give you the first definition of escapism. You don't need to write these down. Um, this, is, this is just something to make you so we're on the same page. Definition number one, the desire to seek distraction and relief from unpleasant realities, especially by seeking entertainment or engaging in fantasy. Here's a definition number two. It's very similar to that. Habitual diversion of the mind to purely imaginative activity or entertainment as an escape from reality or routine. Very similar to the first one, right? Here's my favorite definition. It's from the American Psychological Association, the APA, uh, number three. The tendency to escape from the real world to the safety and comfort of a fantasy world. I, I like that. And here's the thing with escapism. We all do it, right, to certain varying degrees, and we'll talk about the levels of that and, and the, the good of it and the bad of it, but it's something we all do, 
And it's also like all of our other emotions, they're out of balance. They often are just all over the place. And we, we talked about in the very first week, that doesn't mean you're controlled by them. Maybe you spend your life trying to control them. We talked about being the emotionless or the rationalist, right? The Dr. Spock. So, so these are realities. We want to have uh, all of our emotions balanced out. And, and other than the Lord Jesus Christ, I could not think of a better example, especially of our topic this morning on escapism, um, to show us emotional health like the Apostle Paul. So hopefully you're at 2 Corinthians 6 right now, and, and I just want to read to you some text from there. You'll see the verses up there. Let me just read them to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 4. Paul writes, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet many, making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Now, I want you to skip over to chapter 11. I want to continue this. In chapter 11, Paul's going to actually kind of unpack a little bit of what he was referring to in chapter 6, starting at verse 23, uh, the, the half of verse 23, 23b. Paul's going to unpack the afflictions and hardships and calamities he and his friends have been facing. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So that means Paul had been whipped about 194 times in his life. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at the sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Wow. Friends, let me suggest to you, if you ever feel a bit uh, tempted to think life is too hard, maybe a little unfair, things aren't going your way, you wish things would be a little easier... I want to encourage you to spend some time reading 2 Corinthians, right? It tends to put things in perspective. Now, you might say, yeah, but yeah, granted, look, in Acts chapter 9, the Lord himself told Paul that he's going to suffer many things. So it's a little bit unfair to use Paul as a picture of endurance and uh, handling under stress. Yeah, that might be true. But if you go to the Gospels in John chapter 15 and John chapter 16, Jesus made it very clear. He told all of his disciples, he says, you will know tribulation. And so while Paul is a picture of it, it certainly applies to all of us as well. The fact that any of us experience any kind of goodness and joy and comfort and material prosperity is actually the surprise blessing. 
It's not the expected norm. I know that's shocking to hear for us who live here in South Orange County in the United States in the 21st century. But if you know anything, I mean anything at all, about history, you know the experience that we have here in the United States with all of our struggles and tensions and challenges. It is like living in paradise on earth for the majority of human experience. That's just the reality, right? Yet at the same time, living in this wonderful place that we do with all of the abundance and all these kinds of um, affluence and comforts and, and, and amazing things in our lives, the need to get a break, find me time or have mental health days to just veg out, whatever it might be, that kind of theme comes up in our conversations more and more and more. In our series, we talked about emotions say things. Now, if anger is saying life is wrong and anxiety is saying life is out of control, then escapism is saying life is hard and I need a break. Remember, our emotions say things to us. So this morning, we're talking about escapism, the desire to flee, the desire to catch a break uh, or just get away from it all. And like we've been doing in this series, the way we're going to do this is we're going to ask and answer three questions, but they're a little bit different than the questions we've been asking before. The questions we're going to ask this morning is, why do people want to escape? Okay? Why escape never seems to truly help, and how do we escape the need to escape? So that, that's the trajectory we're going at this morning. So let's talk about the first one. Why do people is, want to escape? Now, like the, this whole series, it's not rocket science. If you just stop for a few moments and think about life, your own experience, and then think about passages in Scripture, you can kind of figure these things out. Right? It's not a surprise, and we actually know why escapism is such a big issue in our culture. Now, the details are always different from life to life and situation, but the underlying premises are the same, and they're principally two. Number one, life is hard. Right? I mean, can I get an amen? Life is hard. We feel overwhelmed. We feel out of control. We feel overburdened. It just never stops. There's too much going on, not enough time to get to it all, not enough resources to take care of all the things we need to do. We overcommit. We underperform. We wonder why things go sideways. It, that's just life. It, it is like a, a full court press from morning to evening. You get up, and it's like a quarter drag, man. It's a quarter drag race until you go to bed. It never stops, and we feel that pressure. Oh, that makes me remember. Um, I have a couple of books. I've been doing this, making some recommendations to you. That's in the bulletin. But two books in particular I want to point out. Uh, they're both written by the same individual and his wife. So the first one is called Reset, Living a Grace-Paced grace Life in a Burnout Culture. And this one's for the guys. And you can see it because there's, there's like a fire extinguisher here. And this one's for the women. It's called Refresh. And it's the same concept because men and women struggle with escapism differently. And, and they're really talking about burnout. But burnout and escapism are, are two sides of the same coin. So the guys don't buy this one because this one's going to be for the women. Or you could read it to help understand your wives. Uh, but this is yours. And you can tell because there's a fire extinguisher on ours. And for the women, I mean, how gender stereotypical. Uh, there's like a little, like a, you water your plants with. Nice and easy. So guys get a fire extinguisher, women get a plant water. So those are in the book spot. So take a look at those. Again, don't buy them today. I want them up there so second hour can see them, but you can take a look at them at the book spot and then you, know, you can get them on your Amazon app. So that was it. So life is hard. Why do people want to escape? Life's hard, man. It just really is. There's no other way to, to, to slice that. 
The second reason is life hurts. I mean, and, and the older you live, the more miles you got on you, the more these just tend to build up. Right? You guys know that. Broken relationships, estranged relationships, lost relationships, dreams that never came true, dreams that got stomped on. Right? And, and, and I guarantee, if you're between, I'd say on the young side, 18, and maybe at the very top side, 22. So if you're between 18 and 22, depending upon your life circumstance, if you're in that range and above, I guarantee you this, not because I know any of you in particular, well, I do know many of you particularly, but I guarantee you're just three questions from tears. I just don't happen to know what those three questions are, but I guarantee you. If you've lived enough life, you're just three good questions from breaking down in tears because life is hard. Life hurts us. Life is often not what we expect, so we want to do over, right? Or at the very least, we want to be able to get off the ride, at least temporarily, because life is hard and it is hurtful. So that's why people want an escape. So it makes sense, right? That's, that's not rocket science. We all get that. But the good news is, especially if you understand the Christian worldview, that is not how life is supposed to be, and that is not how life will be. If you're familiar with the Bible, you don't have to read literally past the first chapter of the Bible to read that life is completely not the way I'm talking about it. When God created life, he literally keeps repeating himself. Oh, this is good. No, this is good. Oh, this is good. This is really good. Six times, and he finally says, this is very good. Now, if you remember our study of the book of Revelation, the number seven, it was significant of completion, maturity, perfection. And if you know anything, if you're in our studies on Hebrew poetry, when, in, in the, the, when they repeat adjectives, that's their way of really emphasizing it. So when God keeps saying in Genesis 1, oh, this is good, this is good, this is good, he's really saying, guys, this is amazing that I made this for you. That's how life was in the beginning. Harmony, perfection, fulfillment, rest, joy. That's how life was. I mean, to this day, when we want to describe a perfect existence, what's the word we use? Eden. Because that's what life was, is, supposed to be. So when we think about escapism, escapism, every form of it, we'll talk a little bit about that, is a yearning for this piece of Eden again. When we think about escapism, it is yearning for a piece of Eden. Even if our definitions of Eden is tainted by our sin, and it is, which only complicates the pursuit, but, but that's another subject. My point is, the desire to escape, get a break, unplug, whatever, when you trace it back, it's a desire for Eden, to have things the way life is supposed to be. Now, escapism, right, takes all kinds of forms, from, from, from uh, romance novels to uh, video games, sports, exercise. A stressed out life can cause you to want to escape, but so can a bored life, right? You're wanting some adventure and purpose. For some people, it's drugs do it. Others, it's bowls of ice cream, they'll get their fix, right? That happens. Working too much, sleeping too late, daydreaming too long. All of these cry out, life is hard, can I get a break here? And all, like, like all of our emotions that we talked about in this series, 
there is a spectrum. There, there is the good, benign kind of escapism that we all kind of it's just, it just need to unwind and decompress all the way over to the life-altering, sinful walking out on your family and everything in between. The ultimate form of that leading to suicide. The ultimate form of, I want out, I need a break. Friends, the emotion that drives us to find rest, to find fulfillment, joy, comfort, safety, needs to be understood biblically because it's a part of our human design. And because it takes all forms and covers the range, we need to understand what the scriptures teach on escapism. And because the distinctions within it are very subtle, it's, it's, it's important for us to talk a little bit about that. So I want to tease this out some. So, so the desire that we're talking about of, for fulfillment, satisfaction, joy, comfort, safety, all of those are actually creational goods. Did you think about that? In other words, that desire that so often is associated with dangerous behaviors to just unplug and check out is actually part of our creational design. If I want to put this in a theological framework for you, I would put all of this idea under the broad rubric of Sabbath, rest, refreshment, recreation. But see, the major difference between what we're talking about and what we know of as escapism and Sabbath by definition, escape means I just want to get out of the situation. I want out. And Sabbath is, is rest to energize you to get back at the tasks at hand that God has given to you. So the, 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 the motive is the thing that really changes it. Escapism just wants out. Rest, Sabbath, wants to be energized to go back in. See, that's a huge distinction. Rest, friends, is a good gift from God. You know that the Bible actually describes our, 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 our existence with God as rest? So rest is a fundamentally good thing. So like all of our other emotions, escapism that we normally associate with the negative things, there's a creational good aspect of it in Sabbath. But because of sin, because of the fall, right, Genesis 3, like all of our emotions, there's a twist to it. It goes inward. It goes selfish. I want out. Think about it this way. Rest is other-oriented because I want to get re-energized. I want to get my strength so I can get back and do, to, to quote Jesus, Matthew 22, to love God and love others better. Escape, by definition, is self-centered. I want a break for me. I want what I need, right? So why do people escape? Because life is hard, because life hurts, but also because this is something of God's creational design in us. The reason I'm saying that is that it's very, we don't want to make the mistake of just kind of polarizing this, like all these things are bad, all these things are good. Like so many of our emotions, there's a great thing that God gave them to us, and because of sin, it goes sideways so often. Escapism, the need for rest, is similar to that. So the reason we want escape is because life is hard, is because life hurts, but it also is because by God's design, we were made for rest, and that's a good thing. So with that kind of brief introduction, when you're thinking about it that way, why then does escape, the, the way most people, as we understand it, never seem to really help? See, when we give into forms of escapism, whatever, and I want you to think for a second, what's your go-to of escapism? Because we're all different. We're all different. What is yours? Right? Again, the act itself is not the problem, but it's the motivation so often. But what is your form? 
Because when we give into escapism, a desire to, our desire to seek a way out to escape, to get out, as opposed to rest, a desire to be re-energized so that you can go back in, when we, for, when we give into escapism, that's a short-term gain for a long-term loss. Short-term gain, long-term loss. Let me give you two reasons for that. Number one, when we give into escape, escape typically pushes pause on whatever situation that you find hard or you're trying to get away from, Right? Rather than addressing the situation, you are actually avoiding the situation by escaping. So it goes something like this. Oh, man, this situation is really hard. I don't want to have to deal with it. Pause. But what happens is because you're not addressing the situation and avoiding it, the problem only gets bigger. And so your need for escape gets stronger. Oh, man, this is now even worse than I had imagined. I really don't want to deal with this. Pause. I'm going to go to the golf range or I'm going to go to a day spa, whatever it is. And the problem keeps it. There's a feedback loop. You get it. So the problem escape feedback loop causes this in our lives. And one of two things happens from that. Number one, the problem becomes so all-encompassing, it crashes your life into a ditch. Or the escape mechanism you're using becomes all-life-consuming, and you crash your life in a ditch. The average American, here's, a, here's an example I think a lot of us can relate to. The average American carries... $6,000 on their credit card debt, right? So if you understand debt, so that's probably 17 to 23% interest rate, that's a lot of money. And you start thinking, now that's the average American. That means there are Americans who carry more than that kind of debt on multiple cards. And you go, oh my gosh, I have over $10,000 in, in debt on my credit cards at 17%. I am stressed. I, I don't want to think about this. I'm just going to go to the movies. I don't have any money, but I'll put it on my credit card and worry about it later right? Pause, problem gets bigger. Now I owe, you know, more, a few dollars more. You guys get the idea. That's how the process goes. In an extreme form, those of us who have been to Japan, you know this, there's something called hikikomori. This is, this is the escapism at its extreme. Hikikomori, there's about a million individuals in Japan. And you know, Japan is a very competitive, uh, highly educated, just almost kind of cutthroat society. And there are about a million people, mostly young men, a few young women, but mostly young men, who just say, I can't handle this anymore. I'm out. I check out of society. And they spend their entire nights playing video games and watching pornography and eating ramen. And then in the day, they wake up to go out to get more ramen, more video games, more pornography, come home. And because they're not working, they live with their parents. And because it's a shame-based culture, the parents don't say anything and keep them in the basement. Here's this something that's shocking. There are more hikikomori in Japan than there are Christians in that nation. So they're in trouble, right? So that's an extreme form. Let me give you a more common form of it that we're probably more used to. Substance addictions here in the U.S. You guys know what that's about. You know what I'm talking about. Drugs, alcohol, whatever it might be. It's a more common experience here. It is the same root. It's the same root of the person looking at their credit card debt, of the hikikomori in Japan, and the person that's shooting up or drinking his life away. The same drive, I got to check out. I do not want to struggle with this anymore. I just want some time away. But that causes its own struggles. So look at it this way, friends. In a very real sense, escapism is a pathway to addiction. Think about it. A culture of indulgence, the amounts of stress we're dealing with, and abundance. It's like the perfect storm for that. It's not a surprise why there's addictions on the rise everywhere. Because it's the same desire to check out, 
to get relief, take a break, find joy, find fulfillment, have some peace, be free of my responsibilities, if even for a little bit. That's the first reason uh, escapism is a short-term gain, long-term loss. Here's a second one. And this is well-known and well-accounted for in the behavioral science literature. Addicts, and so when I'm saying addicts, I'm not just talking about substance abuse, right? I'm talking about all of our addictions that happen to fly under the radar of addiction literature. So you might be addicted to your ice cream. You might be addicted to your shopping. You might be addicted to sports and fitness, Whatever it is that you go to when you don't want to deal with life, calling it the same thing, right? This is why the literature says that addicts of all sorts are universally emotionally immature. Okay? Now, they're not immature because they want to escape. Because that's all of us. We all want to escape. We all feel that desire. The reason they're immature is because at the point of pressure, they chose to run and escape rather than do the hard work of pressing into the situation at hand. This is why, especially when it comes to substance addictions, if you know somebody who is in that situation and they started at 14 or 15, even when they're 25, guess what? They still respond as if they're 14 or 15. Why? Because rather than deal with the situation, they had an out. They just kept going to. That's the way it works. Open your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 5. I want to read you a passage that if you're a Christian or a new Christian, this has got to be like one of your go-to passages of Scripture. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Some of you already know what Paul says here. We'll be in here in two weeks. Romans 5 verse 3, Paul writes this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why, Paul? Don't you want to get away from your sufferings? No, this is what he says. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. There's a progression here. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. We'll unpack that in greater detail in two weeks, but I don't want you to miss the point. There is a redemptive point to our hardships, our trials, our sufferings, struggle, difficulty, hard things are key to an opportunity to growth. Escape is a retreat by definition, not an advance. And friends, if you are a Christian, the reason we have been left behind is to engage, not to escape. Some of you read the article I posted, um, Gospel Thoughts on Moving Away. This is not a, a slight on anyone moving away. But one of my points was that Jesus left, left us in hostile territory for a reason. Right? In the same way, we want to engage, not escape. Joni Erickson Tata, some of you may be familiar with her. She's world famous for her wonderful ministry to the disability community. Uh, Joni became a quadriplegic uh, at the age of 17. She had misjudged a dive into the Chesapeake Bay, and ever since then, she's been in a wheelchair. If I were to nail down suffering's main purpose, she says, I'd say it's the textbook that teaches me who I really am. Wow. Friends, at the point we desire escape, at that point, right? So whatever your go-to is, 
and again, I'm, I'm, I'm contrasting this to the need for rest because that's biblical and that's good. But when you say, I can't handle this, I don't want to deal with it anymore, I'm going to, whatever it is. At that point, that's where you know who you are. It's not what you post on social media for the world to see. It's not what you write in your annual Christmas card for the world to read, right? It's not what even you say to people when they ask how you're doing. It is at that point of the pressure and you make the decision, escape or engage, you find out who you are. One of my favorite writers, Stephen Pressfield, in his book, Gates of Fire, uh, Pressfield writes about historical battles that shaped world history, and, and it is a historical fiction book, and it's about the Battle of Thermopylae. Now, in the, in the book, Gates of Fire, it's a historical fictional account, but Pressfield includes an actual interaction as recorded by the Greek historian Herodotus. Now, if you're not familiar, uh, the Greek Spartans of the West had to fend off the, 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 the Medo-Persian horde of the East. And it, the, the battle's been made famous by the, um, the movie 300, where it was about 300 Spartans holding off 300,000 of the immortals. Now, that's not historically accurate. They're probably 7,000 against 300,000. So, I mean, it's still like a massive disproportionate battle, uh, but there were many Spartans and a lot of Laodiceans, uh, other Greek city-states. The point is, um, there was a small number of them. Towards the end of the battle, though, as the, as the Greeks were having to make a retreat in order to them for the rest of the Greeks to survive, they had to stop the, Pers, the immortals, and that's where the Spartans came in. And, and it's, a, it's an amazing story, but here's an account that Herodotus records. One of the soldiers had reported to the, the, the platoon leader, Dionysus, that the Medes had so many archers that when they all let loose their arrows into the sky, so great was the horde that it would block out the sun. To which Dionysus, the Spartan commander, replied, then they do us a favor by providing us shade in which to fight. Now, as history records, Dionysus and all the Spartans died in that battle. But their courage to stand, to fight, and to suffer rather than escape rallied the other Greek city-states, and they eventually routed the Medo-Persians. That battle changed the course of Western civilization. Herodotus says this is an account that actually took place. Now, the reason I share that is because there's an attitude in Dionysus' speech of, of not taking it easy, of not having the easy way out or getting a break, but moving towards the hardship, moving into the conflict. And when anyone reads that, you can't help but feel your heart being stirred because we know there's something right about that stance. And I think deep down we all want that. And, and sure, our situation's very different. We're not taking up arms against the Medo-Persians and defending our homes. We're like putting up stress, putting up with the stress at our office. It's a little different than fighting the Eastern Horde. We're, we're cleaning up poop and vomit all the time of whatever the number of motherly chores young moms have to do is not quite like rallying a nation in time of crisis. And no one's going to erect a monument of you because you lovingly, patiently served your husband or wife because their memories kept slipping day by day. But here's the thing. Mundane virtue is still virtue. It's the same impulse. 
of that dad who's working and putting up with a lot of garbage because he's providing for his family. For that mom who's overburdened and overstressed, who's constantly at it, but she does so because of the family. That husband and wife who toil in obscurity when in those later years of life, when life takes more than it gives. Mundane virtue is still virtue. It's the same impulse in the same way, friends, that at its core, the one who checks out from an argument because they don't want to have to deal with it anymore, and they just do their, like, maybe shopping binge, or they, they go to video games or a strong drink. It's the same kind of impulse as the one who abandons their family because they don't want to deal with it anymore. It's only a difference in degree. It's the same impulse, just difference in degree. The issue isn't, at first, our actions, is it? It's where the, where it's the posture of your heart. And that's why I was saying, who we are, friends, is not determined by the big moments in life that everyone's aware of. It's determined in those little moments that nobody is aware, where you make the choice, will I escape or will I engage? Will I move toward the hardship or am I going to seek an easy way out? Will I fight in the shade or will I abandon my post? Now, if we're honest... We all know what we should do. Again, I haven't said anything you don't already know. The problem is, the problem is we can't seem to do it. Which is why I started reading from Paul. And this is our last question. How do we then escape this need to escape? Because when we look around, if, if we're looking at people, it either seems like they got their stuff together, and that either means they're either faking it better than you, or if they actually have it together, a lot of times those people tend to be pretty proud of their having it together and they become self-righteous. And so if you're one of those in the middle who want help, going to the people who fake it or going to the self-righteous are not very helpful. And in a church, that's the last thing we want, is to be full of fake people or self-righteous people. But unfortunately, that's the rap churches often get, maybe well-deservedly. But when we read Paul... He doesn't seem like he's faking it. He's being straight up, and he's not filled with any self-righteousness. So if we want any help on this, then how do I escape the need for escape, especially if this need for rest and comfort is, is in me by design, how do I get this right? Well, again, the key to emotional health, right, is tying your, your desires into the desires of God. I think that's something to it. But I, I want to take us to two passages in 2 Corinthians. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed this, but 2 Corinthians it is the most personal letter of Paul. Like you read Galatians, you read Ephesians or the pastoral epistles. It's Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's talking about structuring the church and how to combat false doctrine. But you get to 2 Corinthians, and you, it's like autobiographical of this man. And so that's what I want to close with us in our remaining time. In particular, there are two phrases Paul says twice. It's it, twice in chapter 4, he says, we do not lose heart. I'll take you there in a moment. He says, we don't lose heart. And then twice in chapter 5, he says, we are of good courage. I like those two polar ends. Not only is it saying, not only are we giving into despair and running and turning tail, but we got energy for the task at hand. So the question is, how, how does he balance those? How does he get that? So let me read us to, um, I should have got there myself, 2 Corinthians chapter Four, verse 1. I can't unpack the whole thing, uh, but by way of just mentioning it, you see it right there in verse 4, uh, verse 1, excuse me. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. 
And then notice the very last verse of chapter 4. Actually, the, almost the last verse. Verse 16, what's the first phrase? So we don't lose heart. So in verse uh, chapter 4, it bookends what's going on. Now let me read you what's going on. Like look at verse 8 in chapter 4. Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So talk about dealing with a lot of difficulty. It's Paul. And, and did you hear how he was saying, we are struck down, but we're not giving up. We're afflicted. We're persecuted, but we're not stopping. What drove him that way? Uh, look at verse 17. So actually, actually, after he says, we don't lose heart, he, even though these trials, his life was literally killing him. Look at the phrase right after that. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. How, Paul? Tell us the key here, verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction. Okay, pause. If you've been paying attention to anything Paul's been saying... I would not describe his situation as a, oh, it's just a light momentary affliction. Uh, you got whipped 195 times. You were stoned once, shipwrecked three times. That's not a light momentary affliction. But to Paul it is. Why? In comparison, look what he says. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. So look at, I mean, the list we read at the beginning of this sermon and what we just read just now, he says, it just does not compute, doesn't even compare, verse 18, how as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Why? For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Okay, guys. This guy went through some hard stuff. If anyone would say, I need a break today, Calgon, take me away, it'd be Paul. Right? He doesn't do any of that. Because his perspective, in verse 17 and 18, changes everything radically. Now, I want to be real clear here. Um, because as Christians, we can tend to be like Christian triumphalism on the one side. right? Just, that's right, we're Christians, we get through anything like Paul, church militant. Um, and on the other side, though, there's a response somewhat to the other side of, of this kind of Christian authenticity. Oh, we're just sinners, and it's okay to be real and struggle and just be you. It's okay. You're not perfect. Just, we get it. We're all, we need grace. And, and both sides are in error. Both sides are not the gospel. Because the gospel is not, suck it up, soldier, and move on. Paul did, Right? And the gospel is also not, that's ah, okay, God loves you just the way you are, don't worry about it. Mm -mm -mm. Those are false gospels. There's, there's an in-between that, 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 that we want to always balance, right? Be because if anything, I think we might be more danger of this one at our church. We're that, we're that kind of church, right? I'm just being honest, we are, right? And, and there's a lot of churches that are right over here. And here's the thing. We can easily, in our culture, make an idol of our grievances and our sufferings. That's what these do. But we can also make an idol of our accomplishments and how we're put together. 
and none of those are gospel. They don't breed anything good. We need them both, right? So these people, you, you can't admit your sin, or else like in small group, you're going to get kicked out, or they're going to call the elders, or you know, I'm struggling with this, and oh my gosh, and they, they, they're judged. These people here, they can't ever talk about striving for holiness because, oh, you self-righteous, you're trying to earn your salvation. No, I'm just trying to be holy because I'm supposed to be holy. Oh, just be you in your sin, right? You see the problem. And you guys know people that way. The gospel's both. Sinners, sinners, I don't want to lose track, who are sufferers that are redeemed. Sinners who are saints, right, who are sufferers. That's a better way to put it. Sinners who are saints who are sufferers. We're all these things simultaneously. So Paul says, yeah, I'm going through all this stuff, and it's hard, but you know what? I just keep looking, and I get it, so I don't lose hope. But then in chapter 5, look at chapter 5, in verse 6, and, and this whole, these two chapters is key to the Paul's understanding, his ministry and life. Look what it says in verse 6 of chapter 5. So we are always of good courage, and just literally a few words later in verse 8, yes, we're of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, of course. But look at what verse 9 says. I love this. this is kind of key. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. In other words, Paul is saying, look, God had appointed him to the situation at hand, just like God has appointed you to your circumstance. And Paul reasoned, because God had put me in this situation, God will equally empower me. Just like how God has put you in your situation, he will empower you. But one of the things that are key is this, this really otherworldly perspective that Paul had. Um, write this down. We can't read it because we're running out of time. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 is a wonderful text about, man, having your mind set on the things of God where Christ is. If you're a Christian, that's where your life is. Put your mind there so that you can be effective in the world is what he says. But the key, Paul says, is to please him. He has this otherworldly perspective, but he wants to please God. Now, how do we do that? This is where we might say, well, more performance. See, we got to do stuff. We got to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. How does a child please a parent? Does a child please a parent because of performance? No. Kind of, yes, right? I mean, <laughs> my wife says I never answer give a straight answer. It's yes and no, right? A parent is pleased by their child's performance not for their sake, but for the sake of the child, the parent wants the child to flourish and perform well for their sake, not for their own, right? So in one sense, yeah, they get pleased because they want the child to be blessed, but the reality is, no, at the end of the day, it's not the child's performance that pleases the parent and gives them delight. It's the child's presence. The, the child just wants to be with you. I know you young parents, you're trying to get away from your kids. You just give me five minutes away from them. No, I don't want to be with them all the time. But you, you, you. when a child wants to be with mom and dad, just simply because they delight in mom and dad, they don't talk that way, but you get that sense. It, it is the greatest joy of your heart. So how do we please the Lord? So that, so that we can have this courage that fueled Paul so we don't lose hope and we don't have to run off into escapism, but we can rest and be re-energized. The key that Paul's showing us here is just, you just love Christ, know Christ. Friends, the one who for your sake, he never ran away. He didn't look for the escape hatch. 
He didn't ask to get a break today. Rather, he's the one who toiled and labored so we could enter his rest. Hebrews 12, 2 says it wonderfully. It's talking about just this Christ in running this race. And it says of Christ, who, who, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, even though he despised its shame. What was that joy? You and I. I love Hebrews 7, 25. It says, Jesus saves to the, he's not even now resting in some sense. He says he saves to the uttermost those who draw near to him. Why? Because he ever lives to intercede for you and I. He does not rest so you and I can enter his rest. Friends, in order to escape the need to escape, you have to find your rest in the one who says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take, notice the balance here though. It says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Why? For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Friends, we, we, we don't have to lose heart, get into despair. We can be of good courage because our aim is to please him, not because in pleasing him we will get something from him, but because we realize through the cross we have the thing we need, him. And when you come to that reality, you call out to him to be your rest. The reality is in this world, friends, we do long for Eden, and we long for Eden because we were made for rest, for comfort, for home. But our sin makes us settle for escape. Escape into a fantasy world that promises life, but delivers heartaches, isolation, loneliness. Jesus is the only one that can uniquely combine our need for rest and comfort with our, our desire for work and fulfillment and purpose. In this world, it just seems like we always have to choose one or the other. But the Christian worldview through the gospel offers that they come both together in Jesus Christ. Friends, let me encourage you, if you are tempted to escape this week, can I encourage you, don't run away from the situation, whether it's a relationship or a pressure or whatever it might be, but run to the arms of a loving Savior who is strong and ever lives on your behalf. And He puts you in that place. He will equip you. He will give to you what you seek in your escape, but it always betrays you. And the longer you've been escaping, I'll be real real with you here, the longer you've been escaping, the harder that will be. But like any pattern, the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And the muscle memory kicks in. Spiritual muscle memory, of course. Next week, we'll conclude our series on emotions um, by talking about how do we just redeem our emotions in general, set a trajectory to where our hearts can beat in the same way that the Lord's heart beats. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.